Hey, this is Josh Dees, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Dudes. We are in week three of of our series called Christian Music That Is Not Christian Music, where we look at a lot of songs in the secular world that strangely have a way of becoming a soundtrack to, of all things, what we read of in the scriptures. And this morning's group and this morning's song is one of the very rare ones in my library that actually comes in the 21st century. It's by a group called Hoobastank. And they are a post-grunge alternative rock band from California. And so in 2003, they released a song called The Reason. And it tells a story about a man who is living his life, and he has a broken heart, over all of the people who he has harmed in his lifetime. And so in this song, it is a daydream about starting all over again. Now with the opportunity to actually live in the present, living and conducting your your life in the way that you in so many ways wish that you you had in the past Is you. 
never meant to do those things to you And so I have to say before I go that song had been released in 2003, there was a college student who was enrolled at the University of South Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida, and the lyrics had reminded her so much of the Christian life and of the Christian experience that eventually she had written out all of the lyrics of the song and had taped them to the front of her Bible. And I know that because I'm married to her and I've seen it with my own eyes. And so with this song in mind, now we come into the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians in the 7th chapter, starting in verse 8. And as you're on your way there, what is happening in this text is the Apostle Paul is writing yet again to the churches who are in the city of Corinth. Now he has written them multiple letters up to this point. And originally he wanted to express all of this directly in front of them in person. And yet the last time that he wrote them a letter, it was one of the hardest things that a minister has to do from time to time. And that is to rebuke and to admonish those who they're speaking to. I mean, Paul performs spiritual open-heart surgery in 1 Corinthians. And so he has written them a letter already, and it was a very um, hard-hitting letter. He has given them a visit not that long ago, but by all accounts, it was a very, very unpleasant trip that, that he made because of everything that he had to expose. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, to the church at Corinth. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, because I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. And yet as it is, he says, I rejoice, not because you had been grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And especially notice how in verse 10 what he says is, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief, it produces death. Then he says in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and yet also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal and punishment, he writes. And so it's very necessary, as he says all of these things, and 
I imagine that their mindset as they read 2 Corinthians is not a far cry from there's many things that we wish that we had never done. There's many things that we have said that we wish that we had never ever said. Thoughts that we wish that we never acted upon. And in the Word of God, it speaks about a number of ways that we can fall short of God's glory. There is a kind of sin that is very intentional and deliberate, where we know exactly what we're doing as we commit the sin. We are reveling in it. We, we are, are even excited at times, savoring every moment that we commit that sin, perhaps. Well, there's another kind of sin Scripture speaks about where we know something good that, that ought to be done, but for whatever reason, we do not actually do it. And yet then there are all those other ways that we fall short of God's glory, where we never in a thousand years meant to actually do that thing. Or maybe we, we had once, once acted upon it in a very ignorant way, but then as we come to realization, we're like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And just like as that song says, I mean, we also are able to, to stand with the church of Corinth and to say that I am not a perfect person. We are not a perfect church. And yet having said that though, once, once all of those horrible things that, that we once did had been done, I mean, there was no going back. Once we had said all of those things we regret ever having said, we just could not reach out into the sky and to grab all of those, those words and to place them back in our mouth. I mean, once it had been said, guess what? It was said. And as we look at the Corinthians, I mean, the Corinthians have a very dark past, don't they? Where he's writing a church comprised of men and women who, who have spent their whole entire lives in this gluttonous and debaucherous culture where it was idol worship and it was drunkenness and temple orgies. And that was just on a slow Wednesday morning for these people growing up. This is a society and a culture where it's all about indulging in all of these hedonistic impulses. And yet, as these people heard about Jesus, they, they arrived at an understanding of the truth and they were baptized in the Christ. They have come such a long way from from who they used to be growing up. And yet, really, the message of, of what we find in 1 Corinthians is this, is that, yes, you've come a very long way, but man, do you guys have such a far way still to go. And that's because, as Paul writes them, I mean, it is just one problem, issue, and dispute, and disruption, and disturbance after another. There are divisions in this church. There are sins of a sexual nature that are rampant in this church. Brothers are, are actually going into court against other brothers, suing them. They are profaning what the Lord's Supper is all about, and they are, are ostracizing those who are poor in the church. There's a guy in the church who, as it says in the scriptures, has a, has, um, a physical relationship with his father's wife. A lot of people think, well, that's his stepmother, but I mean, this is Corinth we're speaking about. Maybe that is his actual mother. Maybe, maybe not. But regardless, Paul says, you guys should not be allowing this to continue in the Lord's church, he's saying. 
And so they have a very dark past and a very troubled um, presence in Corinth. Paul also has a very dark past. As he reminisces in his life elsewhere in Scripture, he, he speaks about how I would throw Christian women into prison just because they were Christians. I would have Christian men killed like, like a dog in the street just because they were Christians. He speaks about how he did everything in his power to exterminate the Christian race off of the face of the earth once and for all. And he says that I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And I just imagine what what welled up in him constantly was, God, I am so sorry for the things that I've done to you. Imagine all the times he walked into a church and a young boy said, that's the guy who killed dad. That's the guy who threw, threw mom into prison. Imagine what that did to his heart everywhere that he went in these places where, where he was widely known. And yet, even though he has a dark past, he also has, at times, a troubled, even, even now in the present time in his life, as he writes this. If we remember how he writes in the book of Romans, for instance, there, there in chapter 7, he says that, that I do not even understand my own actions. Because the very things that I despise and I hate, that is what I keep doing. I don't want to do it, I don't mean to do it, but I just keep doing it every now and then. And the very things that I love to do, I am struggling at times to actually do. He is struggling in the present as well as in his dark past. But, and the exact same is also true for, for you and for me. Where every single person who walks up to the baptistry walks up to those waters with a past. With skeletons in every closet of their spiritual house. What we read there in Psalm 78 are these words about, it speaks about the ancient Israelites in the wilderness as it says, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him out in the desert. And I think that is an apt description of the Corinthians as well. How often they were grieving God in his heart. And yet, really, it's also an apt description of, of you and me as well. That we have come such a long way in our lives as Christians. And yet as long as we, we have breath in this, this, this world and in this life, we have such a long way to go in terms of, of our maturing in Christ Jesus. All those times that we have grieved God to his heart. And again, the words of that song, The Reason, come to my heart where it says that, that I'm so sorry that I've hurt you. It's something that, that I've got to live with every single day. That thought that, that I grieved you, God. All the times that our old self and our old desires cry out to us, seducing us, trying to get us to romanticize about who we used to be and go back to being that guy and that woman. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing about in, in his letters. But, but I mean, Paul understands, though, that, that he cannot make them be transformed in Jesus. But rather, anybody who wants to be transformed in the Christ-likeness has to desire that transformation. 
And so for all of these things that we wish that we had never done, really another line in that song that jumps out at me are the words that I just wish that I could take it all away. It's something that I live with every day. And for a lot of romantic um, relationships, that never happens, unfortunately. And yet for the spiritual relationship between God and man, the good news for us this morning is that there actually is a way for all of those horrible things we have done in our past to be taken all away and to be removed from our souls. Where in our text it says in verse 8 how he says that as I wrote to you, it was something that had grieved you to your hearts. Now, of course, that is speaking about very intense, soul-wrenching kind of pain. It's the kind of pain that I had experienced five years ago at the death of my grandfather, where he was such an important individual in my life and a voice um, in my life that, that for like three or four solid weeks, I mean, literally every 20 minutes of the day, I was breaking down at work and at church in the middle of class and sermons even and just crying until it hurts. And yet the interesting thing though is about that word grieve is that there are a lot of things that we have done that can actually make our hearts ache in that exact same way to where it actually feels as if a death has occurred in our inner circle. Now that word grieve is the exact same word that the rich young ruler is described by in the Gospels about how, how he chooses not to follow after Jesus. He chooses his stuff. It says that he walks away sad. What that word means is that he is feeling as if he has just lost his grandfather. He is grieving his heart out. It's the exact same word that is used as Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they were grieved to their hearts in the upper room. And so as Paul writes his second letter to the church at Corinth, and they look back on, on that original letter that they received, I mean, that letter absolutely shook these people. I mean, it caused them to lose sleep and to be haunted in their every waking moment. It inflicted this disorienting ache within them. And yet there is a reason why Paul uses that word sorrow or the word grief six times in our text, 18 times in the whole entire 2 Corinthian letter. And I think that's because sadness, this kind of sorrow and grief and ache, this is a necessary part of the Christian life and of the Christian experience. This is really what James is referring to when he says in his letter, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And yet notice how that needs to, to transpire. How this is done. Where he says, be wretched. Mourn, he says, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and let your joy become gloom, he says. You see, this is what it means to have this kind of grief. And I mean, I just want to say that if we can't remember the last time that the crucifixion of Jesus or that sins that we, we have recently committed caused us to cry out our hearts, 
If we can't remember when the last time it was that we mourned over sins that we were committing, then it's very likely that there are um, sins in our present lives, activities right now in our lives that, that we need to be mourning over, James says. And what Paul says in our text is that there are at least two kinds of grief. There is a worldly grief where you have done horrible things to other people. But you're just kind of sorry about that. But really what it is is that you are sorry that other people saw you do what is, what is improper. And so oftentimes what you do if you have, have this worldly sorrow is you issue a very insincere apology. And, and once nobody's looking at you anymore, you just keep doing what you've already been, been up to. And really at its worst, this kind of worldly grief, you know, it has grief, it has remorse, but there is so much grief that, that a person never stops grieving over it. And I think the ultimate example of this in the extreme is Judas Iscariot, where his sorrow rightfully has broken his spirit. And at first it looks very good. He's got remorse. He takes all of the blood money back to all those people who had given it to him, he throws it at them. Coins are, are spinning all over the ground. And yet psychologically, though, Judas is gone. There is so much shame and so much guilt welling up inside of Judas that all of that shame and guilt causes him to actually plunge into self-destruction. And it caused him to grieve all the way to his grave. And I have met so many people like this in churches all over the earth where they believe wholeheartedly, you know, Jesus loves everybody except for me. Jesus, Jesus has forgiven Jerry and Ruth and David, but, but Jesus just could never, ever, ever forgive what I have done. It's so, so horrible and indefensible. And really, this is that kind of worldly sorrow. As the Apostle Paul says, all that it ever does is produce death. This is not at all what comes from the Holy Spirit. But rather, what actually does come from the Holy Spirit is called godly sorrow. And so in verse 9, it says that, you know, I'm glad that I had said all of that stuff to you because it drove you to repentance. And I know that word repentance is a very churchy word where we may not completely understand what it means all the time. But it is a Greek word metanoia, and what it literally means is having a brand new mind. And in time, if you welcome a brand new mind as the mind of Christ within us, in time we will begin having a brand new heart, brand new appetites and desires of a spiritual nature. And in time, what we will have then is a brand new us. And so worldly grief does, does nothing but just guilt and shame and death. Godly sorrow, though, it says, has no regrets. Once we stop practicing something according to the flesh and we begin living in the spirit, we are not going to regret that, it says. See, there is a way for all of those things that we wish we had never done to be taken away. And that is having a godly sorrow to the point that we allow it to actually change the way that we conduct ourselves. Change the way that we actually think. 
And as Paul writes his last letter to Corinth, this is exactly where they happen to be. They are in the process of Christian transformation. I especially want us all to note, though, what he mentions there in verse 11, though. Where what we see is that repentance is a verb. Action is required if we truly have repented. I mean, repentance does not say, but repentance actually, well, it does. If we truly have repented, everybody who ever saw the old us is going to immediately say, man, what is going on with you? You are not at all like you used to be. And I mean, there is nothing more beautiful than when a person truly repents. Where what we see in the Word of God so many times, and in fact, it's what we saw a few weeks ago, in fact, in the life of Zacchaeus. As Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he, he confesses out loud, I have defrauded people out of money. And so he begins selling all of his possessions, gives it to the poor, vows that if I have defrauded anybody of anything, I will make restitution four times in return. You see, repentance does not say repentance especially does. It's the people who we read about in the book of Acts, chapter 19, as Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And there are all these people who are into black magic and, and in magical arts. And they begin renouncing everything that they used to do before they, they ever heard of Jesus. And they start burning all of these magical incantation books worth, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. This is a very graphic example of metanoia repentance, where we take all of this stuff that we used to practice and used to clamor for, and we light it on fire. It's those thousands of people that we read about in Acts chapter 2, where what, what washes over them is, what have we done? We murder Jesus Christ, but, but we don't care what anybody thinks of us from this point forth. We are going to live for Jesus. And so, yes, we will be baptized right now. We're going to follow Jesus. There is evidence of repentance. And, as, and especially in that 11th verse, what the Apostle Paul is, is really expressing here is, is just one evidence after another. Where he says, look at how earnest you were in repenting. Well, when we are, are very earnest in repentance, earnestness moves very quickly. Earnestness says that, that I've got to address this right now. He also says, notice what eagerness you, you have in having your names cleared. They want to be acquitted of what they have committed. He says, what indignation and I think a lot of times our struggle is we, we are very good at indignation. And yet it's almost always about what everybody else is doing who we do not agree with. And yet what these Corinthians are actually up to is that we have indignation about sins. You know, we are so disgusted about what we ourselves have done. And so we're going to make, make drastic changes in our lives now. He says, notice all, all of the fear that you have, that we cannot continue practicing these things. He says, what longing that you have. And this is a longing to be reconciled with the Apostle Paul. 
It is a yearning to once again live in covenantal relationship with God. He says, notice how much zeal that you have. And this is what I would like to call enthusiastic anxiety to be forgiven of what we've done. It is a zeal that I want to be brand new right now. Last of all, it is a punishment, he says, that, that you have addressed all of these situations I've mentioned. You have had those uncomfortable conversations, and now, as a result of that, you are now brand new people. You are a brand new congregation. And so what we see in 2 Corinthians is that when the letter had convicted them, when it grieved them to their hearts, it did not stop there, but rather it made them make changes in their life. And yet I want us to know, though, that this is never an easy transition. Where it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Again, brand new way of thought, and that is the mind of Christ. And yet then he says, for, for whoever has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin. Really, in other words, when we let go of, of um, sins that we have been practicing, it is much as it is as a coke addict who, who is in recovery trying to get off cocaine dependency. I mean, that is not going to be an overnight transition. That is going to be the hardest thing that a person has ever done, where they want to use once again, and they want to, to um, go back to that, that lifestyle, but... And yet there is a reason why I am not going to do that anymore. And no matter what it is in the flesh that, that we have been indulging, it hurts to let those things go. But as it says, when we do let these things go, there is no regret afterwards. None whatsoever. And so really what these Corinthians have discovered is that, that, is that God has given us all a reason. God has given us a reason to change who we used to be. A reason to start over new. And over and over and over again, that reason always is Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus in us. Where there's a reason why Paul is admonishing them, and it's not to elevate himself and to rip them down, but the reason why he's admonishing them is because he wants to grow up in Jesus with these people. And there's a reason why a person is to be baptized into Christ Jesus. It's not because they just are, are scared about not going to hell. And yet the reason is, is that I believe that Jesus Christ defeated Satan. And I believe that he raised from the dead. And I want to be his disciple. And I am his disciple. Now, there's a reason why we as Christians give to those who are poor. It's not because we need to feel good about ourselves, but it's because when we look at that poor person, we are looking into the face of Jesus as we feed them and as we clothe them. As we sing, it is not to impress people, but rather the reason why we sing love songs to Jesus is because it says, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we need you. There's a reason why people are to be ministers of the gospel and it's, and it's never to make a name for their own selves. It's always to say that Jesus Christ is the love of this world. 
And I mean, he's given us a reason to wake up in the morning. He's given us a reason to live, to exist, to live and to die in everything that we do. And again, over and over again, the only reason for that is Jesus, 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 Jesus. After the Apostle Paul had divulged that he was at war with his own self, doing all of the stuff that he hated doing, What he says after that is, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet he found his reason and he found his way to to accomplish just that. Where he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And yet for all the rest of us, though, who have been living this Christian life for a long time, I just want to ask us here this morning, I mean, have we completely changed who we used to be? Or is there a part of the old us who is still alive and well, who we are are resuscitating and joyously keeping alive within us, allowing all of this to happen? Is there anything that we need to let go of this morning that we've been clinging to from our past? Is there any ways in our minds that that we need to change the way that we we think and that we act? Whether it is a church at Corinth, or it's the Apostle Paul, or it's you, or it's me, we can all say these words. That I am not a perfect person. There's many things that I wish that I had never done. Yet as I continue learning, I just want you to know that I am so sorry that I've hurt you. And I'm so sorry for all the pain that I have brought you and put you through. And yet, nevertheless, you have given me a reason to change who I used to be and a reason to start over new. And that reason in that way, again, is Jesus. It's not a Christian song. And yet, then again, it is as much a Christian song as How Great Thou Art.